This podcast is brought to you by Intrepid Travel, the global leaders in providing experience-rich small group trips. Intrepid was founded on the idea that travel, if done right, can be a force for positive change in the world. They believe that adventure and an open mind can break down barriers, challenge stereotypes, and bring us all a little closer together. Hello and welcome to another episode of That Time When, a podcast series about moments that change the course of people's lives. I'm Jane Nithicott from Dumbo Feather, and this week we're hearing from Emma, whose world was quite literally changed when a stranger's lungs saved her life. Emma has cystic fibrosis, an inherited life-threatening disorder that damages the lungs and digestive system. In her late 20s, on the advice of her doctors, Emma went on the waiting list for a double lung transplant. Here she tells what it was like to wait for that one phone call, to finally receive it, and what life was like on the other side. When I was 19, I started having a talk with the Alfred team about lung transplant. My lung function was around 30%. It had been there for a while, but things had started to go wrong. Um, there were a series of, I guess, slow declines, which were collapsed lungs, a lot of bleeding in the lung. You know, it wasn't ideal. I guess it was hard emotionally because, you know, you look in the mirror and you look at yourself at 19 and I wasn't like a 19-year-old. I was more like an 80-year-old. So it was really hard to, you know, look in the mirror and be like, wow, this is, this is it, you know, this is my life. And of course, you know, I didn't know because I wasn't actually listed yet, I didn't know what, what the outcome was necessarily gonna be. I just knew that I was getting sicker. And I guess I became more insular. I wasn't able to do so as much, so I was staying at home a lot more. Um, you know, I stopped to work. I mean, even prior to that, I was only working part-time because I was just getting so tired. And life was just very hard. You know, I made the most of what I had, like I had my family and I had my animals, which you know I love. But I guess mentally, because I'd had a long time to prepare for it, I was able to cope more easily than others that it happened too suddenly. But I still went through every stage on the spectrum in terms of you know being really angry, you know, really upset. And then I kind of just was like, okay, at the end of the day, if I want to live, I have to, you know, I have to fight to live. You can't just give up. Even though I looked in the mirror and I looked and I saw it like an 80-year-old, I still was like, I'd go to clinic and I'd be like, oh, I'm not as sick as them. I'm because I was a high-functioning. 30%, I'd look at them and think, oh, I'm not as, I could push it out, you know, but really I didn't have that time. And to look back on it, I, you know, I wouldn't have lasted another year, but I didn't realise it at the time. I think I was trying to stay more positive, like I'm going to keep going as long as I have to because that's what I have to do, as opposed to, no, actually things are really bad, you know, I could really die. So I think positivity also helped, even though I'm not naturally a positive person, 
it's just I think in that in in the face of that situation, you know, you have one of two choices: you can either fall down in a heap, or you can kind of just get on with it. And I guess I chose the latter. Before I'd done the waiting list, I was assessed, so a series of tests to assess whether I'm a good candidate for transplant. And if I am a good candidate, then I am listed. And then it's literally just a wait. You could get a phone call in the middle of the night. You could get a phone call anytime. They advise you to stay within an hour of the hospital. And if you're going to be further, then you need to give them notice so that they know how long it's going to take you to get there. And then, yeah, you, it's an indefinite wait. You never know when it's going to happen. And because I had the hospital calling me a lot as it was, every phone call that came on like a private phone number, I was holding my breath like, hello. And then they'd be like, oh, no, it's just me. Don't worry. And I'd be like, oh, stop scaring me like that. And when that's why when the phone call finally came, it was actually quite shocking because it was like we were having a lazy Saturday morning and I was just, we were just sitting in bed and like my family had and got coffee and breakfast or whatever. And the phone rings and I was like, oh, yeah, whatever, it's been, you know, it's been over a year. I'd settled into that feeling where it was like never going to happen. And so I wasn't so jumpy about it. So I answered the phone and they're like, and it was the coordinator. And he's like, yeah, we've got a pair of lungs. And I'm like, are you serious? And he's like, yeah, it's okay, calm down. He's like, take your time, come in, you know, in the next hour or so. And my boyfriend was in the shower and I went in and he's like, you're joking, right? And I'm like, why would I joke about this? It was very surreal. I was kind of just like, I can't believe this is happening. And I, and because you can have false starts, is what they call them, where sometimes it doesn't work out and the surgery will not go ahead, um, I was sort of waiting for that to happen. Yeah, it was, it was very surreal. It was like a whirlwind. And I think I was just running on pure nervous energy and just thinking, oh my God, this is actually happening. A, because I was excited to get new lungs, but B, because I was going in for like this huge surgery. The surgery itself was more complicated than planned. Because I was young, they intended for it to go completely to plan, but it didn't actually happen that way. So um, there are a few problems. So I ended up on what's known as an ECMO machine. So it's kind of similar to life support. It reoxygenates the blood and everything like that. I was on that and I was in ICU for 12 days, which normally if things go well, you're only in for a couple of days. And because I was on the ECMO machine, I couldn't move my legs. And so I ended up getting blood clots in both my legs, DVTs. But then they discovered another blood clot in my stomach, one in my uh, pulmonary valve, so my heart. And then while I was still sedated my fam even though I was like I was a little bit less sedated but my family realized that I wasn't moving my right side and that's when they scanned and discovered I'd had five strokes and so that was also kind of complicating the situation so when I actually woke up I wasn't able to move my right side and I was blind so that kind of took away from the shine of having brand new lungs a little bit because I didn't really get to appreciate them because I was freaking out about all the other stuff a bit. I mean, that was the hardest part when we went to ophthalmology and they said to me, look, from our point of view, it's not your eyes, it's your brain. And if your brain is either going to figure it out or it's not, you may be like this forever, you may not. And so they couldn't give me any guarantees that the blindness 
and my sight was going to come back. And so that was really hard to swallow because it was like I've got this great new pair of lungs and I potentially could be less independent than what I was before. So I, I guess I appreciate it twice because the lungs were perfect and it's amazing that I've bounced back as well as I have considering everything that happened. The most, I think the most support and the greatest bond that I also formed in terms of the medical team post-transplant was with my physio, Lou, who was just very, she was very tough and pushed me, which is what I needed, but at the same time there's, you know, there's a bond that was formed and, you know, I'm forever grateful because without her I wouldn't be where I am now. Like when I first started gym, I couldn't see. So I and she, and she's like, "Yep, get on the bike, do it." And I'm like, "I can't see anything." Like, and she just was sort of like, "I don't care, still whatever." And I was like, "Ah," oh. but they were very supportive. They helped me when I needed it. But it was like, "Well, I'm not going to treat you like you're special just because you can't see." It was like, you know, you're like everybody else. to take a deep breath it's 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 very very strange like to just be able to like take this huge deep breath and like I remember I had I had another test the other day and they're like oh you need to hold your breath and I haven't been able to hold my breath in years and I'm thinking I can't do this it's not gonna happen and then I'm like okay I'll just I'll just try and all of a sudden I can now hold my breath you know for, for like a period of time and it's quite bizarre it's I don't think I realised how little I was living on until I now know what it feels like to have fully expanding lungs. And, you know, I'm not even at my full lung percent yet. So I'm still only sitting at like 65 or something percent, which is, you know, it's still double what I, or it's actually more than double than what I was before transplant, but it's still not the full capacity of what they could be in the future. It's, yeah, I think it's kind of past the point of gratitude. I, I don't think there's really a word to describe it. I think, you know, it's basically like a second chance at life um, because without it, you know, I wouldn't be here. Basically, someone has ultimately made that really hard decision to do that even though they've lost their loved one. You know, how do you put into words that, you know, they've saved your life and also a whole lot of other people's because they've ultimately donated more than one organ? You know, what do you say? thank you and you know I can't ever repay you and I can't put into words how you've literally changed my life forever and that's the hard part like you you write your donor family a letter and that's the struggle because you don't want to write something that that seems not enough because they're making this really hard choice to help other people when they're you know they've lost someone really important to them and they're struggling I don't know a lot about my donor um, I found out a, a small amount about them, but not much. And I guess you know, it's hard because I don't know the person that they were. You know, I'm guessing that they were obviously a wonderful person because their family are wonderful people to make the choice to donate. And so I feel like I've got to now do something with, you know, with my lungs, not just like, not, I could live a normal life and that would be, that would be enough. But I feel like I need to do more than that to you know to justify 
the gift that I've been given and make people aware about the, the gift that is organ donation and how it really can change people's lives forever. It's almost like a fresh start. It's like a brand new lease of life. And so I can kind of start again and do the things that I wasn't able to do before and make the most of it, however long that may be, and, and not have any regrets and not look back and think, you know, why didn't I do this? So, you know, I guess it's kind of made me less inhibited and stuff like that. Not, not irresponsible, but if I want to decide that I'm going to go overseas, I'm not going to think, oh, you know, oh, I've got it, but what about this or what about that? I'm just going to say, no, I'm, you know what, I'm going to do it. It would be great to just go and see the world and just have a whole lot of life experiences that, you know, I haven't had. You know, obviously I'm also going to get back to work and, you know, there's also normal life. Then I guess see what happens because at the moment it kind of feels like the world is my oyster and so I can do whatever I want and I really don't have any limitations now. Thank you so much for joining us for That Time When. And thank you to Emma for sharing your story with us. Did you know that one organ donor can save the lives of up to 10 people? Head to donatelife.gov.au to find out more. If you have a That Time When story to share with us or some feedback, drop us a line. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram with the handle DumboFeather or you can send us an email at hello at dumbofeather.com. Emma's interview was conducted by Nathan Scalaro and this episode was produced by Lizzie Martin. For more extraordinary conversations, why not subscribe to Dumbo Feather magazine? We deliver worldwide. <laughs>